All right. I think everybody's here. Uh, thanks for joining. As usual, everyone, good to see you. Uh, I do not have any announcements. So without further ado, Robert has another lesson for us. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. As usual, we will start with the scripture reading. So I'm going to press play. Now, as Jesus was passing by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so that the acts of God may be revealed through what happens to him. We must perform the deeds of the one who sent me as long as it is daytime. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground and made some mud with the saliva. He smeared the mud on the blind man's eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So the blind man went away and washed and came back seeing. Then the neighbors and the people who had seen him previously as a beggar began saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some people said, This is the man, while others said, No, but he looks like him. The man himself kept insisting, I am the one. So they asked him, How then were you made to see? He replied, The man called Jesus made mud, then smeared it on my eyes and told me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and was able to see. They said to him, Where is that man? He replied, I don't know. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. Now the day on which Jesus made the mud and caused him to see was a Sabbath. So the Pharisees asked him again how he had gained his sight. He replied, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I am able to see. Then some of the Pharisees began to say, This man is not from God, because he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such miraculous signs? Thus there was a division among them. So again they asked the man who used to be blind, What do you say about him, since he caused you to see? He is a prophet, the man replied. Now the Jewish religious leaders refused to believe that he had really been blind and had gained his sight until at last they summoned the parents of the man who had become able to see. They asked the parents, Is this your son, whom you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? So his parents replied, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how he is now able to see, nor do we know who caused him to see. Ask him, he is a mature adult, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jewish religious leaders, for the Jewish leaders had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is a mature adult, ask him. Then they summoned the man who used to be blind a second time and said to him, Promise before God to tell the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, I do not know whether he is a sinner. I do know one thing, that although I was blind, now I can see. Then they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he cause you to see? He answered, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You people don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They heaped insults on him, saying, You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. We do not know where this man comes from. The man replied, This is a remarkable thing, that you don't know where he comes from, and yet he caused me to see. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is devout and does his will, God listens to him. Never before has anyone heard of someone causing a man born blind to see. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They replied, You were born completely in sinfulness, and yet you presumed to teach us? So they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, so he found the man and said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man replied, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? 
Jesus told him, You have seen him. He's the one speaking with you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that those who do not see may gain their sight, and the ones who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and asked him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus replied, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now because you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. Perfect. Okay. Well, that was chapter 9. This is a shorter chapter, so we should be able to cover the whole thing without a problem. And as usual, I'm going to focus on the main themes. There's a few things here and there that I, I just kind of have to skip for the sake of time. But without further ado, then, let's talk about the setting. And there's one crucial thing about the setting. Now, keep in mind that chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, they are all one scene. Okay, It's all like one act if this were a play or you know something like that. And because we read them separately, just for you know, convenience purposes, we might forget information that was provided in a prior chapter, but that is important for this one. Particularly since verse 7, 37, everything has been happening on, quote, on the last day of the feast, close quote, meaning on the Sabbath. Because if you guys remember from a few sessions ago, we talked about this, the Feast of Tabernacles started on a Sabbath, which was Saturday, and it lasted for eight days. So the last day of the feast was the next Saturday, the next Sabbath. So Jesus is doing all of this on the Sabbath. And we already know, of course, from chapter 5, that this is a big deal. And in fact, this is going to feel a little bit like a repeat of chapter 5. Uh, but the conversation goes a little different. And the blind man who is healed also has a bit of a different attitude. Okay, But we should keep that in mind. Um, also, I guess to address this, because this is something that... Um, uh, Brian has brought up, Brian, you know, he regularly participates in this Bible study. Uh, the chapter divisions, they were not there originally. It's not like when John was writing his gospel, he was numbering chapters, you know, one, two, three, whatever. Those divisions were inserted later, again, just for the sake of convenience. And so a chapter division doesn't really mean anything Theologically speaking, it just makes it easier to organize the text, and that's all. But sometimes the guys who divided the chapter sections, I mean, they had to make tough choices and kind of divided action that really belonged in one narrative. Okay, that's neither here nor there. But just so we're clear, um, uh, I had to point that out. Okay, so the text begins with who committed the sin? What I mean by that is we have a blind man who has been blind from birth. And the assumption that the conversation begins with is this blindness is the result of or the punishment for sin. Now, whose sin is it? Is it the sin of the blind man or is it the sin of his parents? Now, I guess let, let's address the, the main question for us is, is uh, illness always the result of sin? And the answer is clearly no, right? Jesus refutes that 
in this passage. Now, to to address that, let me use chapter 5 as context because we have already covered chapter 5. That's when Jesus also healed a blind man on the Sabbath. And he he tells the guy in chapter 5, not, not the guy in the current text, he says, Look, you have become well. Don't sin anymore, lest anything worse happens to you. And I explained at the time that that comment could be interpreted in a supernatural way in the sense that, hey, if you sin, again, then, you know, further divine punishment will, will come after you. But really, that, that comment can be interpreted in a much more plain or kind of natural way, which is sometimes sin has consequences. Uh, you know, we could give a number of examples, but for example, if you engage in uh, sexual immorality, then you could end up with an STD. That's not supernatural in any sense. That's just how life works or if you steal you might end up in jail that's also that's a different kind of negative consequence but that is a negative consequence that could follow sin um, and so forth now during the first century what did the jewish contemporaries believe they actually had broadly speaking three options for what could cause something like blindness um, they, they of course, understood, like anyone in history has, that bad choices can lead to bad results, right? Uh, like, again, if you uh, are engaging in, in, in uh, sexual morality, you can end up with a disease. Everyone has always understood that. Um, they also thought that sometimes illnesses or other conditions of this kind could be the result of demons, Okay, so it was not necessarily God punishing somebody, but it was demon possession. But it certainly was the case that illnesses could be the result of divine punishment for some kind of sin. Okay, that certainly was a possibility in their minds. And clearly they've ruled they've ruled out the possibility that this was just some kind of natural consequence of an unwise choice because this guy has been blind from birth. So certainly he couldn't have done something that caused this. Nobody seems to consider the demon alternative in this text for whatever reason, maybe because the guy was uh, rather nice and polite and didn't show any other signs of, of, you know, demon possession or something like that. And so it left them with the only option available, which is this is the result of sin, some kind of like divine punishment. Um, and of that, there's two options. It was either the parents or it was the, the blind man himself who did something wrong. This might seem very odd to us, but, uh, well, actually both options are going to seem a little bit odd to us. On one hand, they really wouldn't have had any trouble believing that a child would have an illness because of the sins of the parents. Uh, that would seem uh, f fair to them. Uh, but two, they also apparently, they, they seem to believe that when the baby was in the womb, it was able to engage in a fair amount of activity to the point that perhaps the baby sinned while it was in the womb. Um, I do not have a Jewish example of this, but there is an Egyptian example that predates this. So it shows us that at least it was kind of out there, this idea. Um, I, I listed in the, the blog is kind of weird, but... Isis and Osiris, uh, the legend was that they had copulated in the womb. Okay, that's a, an Egyptian example. Again, it's not a Jewish one. All I'm trying to show is this 
prenatal activity idea was already available at the time. Okay. All that is background, right? That, that's kind of all the assumptions that are, that are being brought into this conversation at the get-go. But Jesus actually kind of takes, <laughs> kind of denies all of this, right? Because he says, no, he's not blind because of the result of anyone's sin. He, uh, actually, let me read the words exactly so I don't get this wrong. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so that the acts of God may be revealed through what happens to him. Now, I, I think that as modern readers of this, we would be highly offended by the idea that somebody would be blind as a result of their parents' sin, but I find that Jesus' answer is probably just as offensive for a modern audience, right? Hopefully it's not offensive for a Christian who believes Jesus, but I'm just saying as modern people in general. Um, because Jesus effectively says, look, uh, he's blind so that a great good may come of it. This is, this is part of God's plan. If, if you notice, this is very much a response to the problem of evil or the problem of suffering, however you want to word it. Um, the idea, or, or that's the, the problem, I shouldn't call that problem, that is the challenge to Christianity that says, if God is all good and all powerful, why would he allow evil and suffering? And their response may just be, well, because God has a plan and a great good will come of this. In fact, and, I, and I'm more than happy to talk more about this kind of at the end of the session, depending on questions and all that. But the prob there, there's two, at least two different kinds of problems of evil. One is the logical one. It, it says that it is logically impossible for an all good and all powerful God to allow evil and suffering. And uh, believe it or not, the logical problem of evil has pretty much gone out of fashion. I'm not saying that no one believes in it anymore, but in the philosophical community, it's not very popular anymore because really it's very hard, if not impossible, to show that God could have no justifying reasons to allow pain and suffering. So the conversation has shifted to what is called the probabilistic problem of evil, which is slightly different. It says, not that it is logically impossible that an all good and almighty God would allow pain and suffering. It says that given the state of the world, given the amount of pain and suffering, it is unlikely, it is improbable that a good and almighty God exists. Okay, so that's where the, the debate is today. If you are into philosophy, and again, we can talk more about all that at the end of the session, if people are interested. Um, but this verse very much encapsulates the Christian response. Uh, God, God has a reason to allow these things, and it's a very good reason, whether we know it or not. Um, okay, so uh, Jesus kind of clarifies that to, to his audience, and then he uses spit and dirt to make mud, puts it on the guy's eyes and then tells him, hey, go wash up, go wash up at the pool of Siloam. And uh, forgive me if I pronounce Siloam that way, but I, I live near an Arkansas town that is called that and that's how they say it. And so, I don't know, that's the pronunciation I'm going to go with. But uh, don't take pronunciation cues from me. Um, at any rate, 
uh, this, believe it or not, the fact that, that Jesus made mud, that he used spit and dirt and made mud, that's, that will be the main point of contention in this chapter. He will not be that he just did this like amazing miracle or it's not even so much that he, that he healed a man on the Sabbath. It is the fact that he worked, right? That Jesus worked making mud. It, it's kind of outrageous, but you notice that they keep mentioning this in the text. He made mud, he made mud, he made mud. Why is that a big deal? Because that is working on the Sabbath. And remember that the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus. So this seems like a very easy offense to get him on, right? To prosecute him for. Um, now, why, why use spit and dirt? Why make mud? Jesus doesn't explain it. So we really kind of have to guess here a little bit. But there's two possibilities. One, it could be that at the time, spit was already associated with some curative powers. This was uh, more common in the Gentile world, but apparently the Jews had already kind of borrowed this superstition or tradition, however you want to call it. So it could be that, that Jesus is using spit just to kind of tell everyone, hey, I am healing someone. Right, because they, that would have clicked with them because of the method that Jesus was using. The other possibility is that this is an allusion back to Genesis 2-7. In Genesis 2-7, this is when God forms man and he forms him out of the soil of the ground. So perhaps Jesus is kind of recreating that scene in a very uh, like small fashion, so to speak, where uh, he is creating sight for this man. I honestly don't know which alternative is more likely. Uh, not for not for lack of studying. I just they both seem likely to me, or perhaps it's both. So I kind of leave that open ended for you guys to decide. Then it says that Jesus smeared or applied the mud on on the man's eyes. That word for smear or apply is the word for anoint. Now anoint is a huge word. In the Old and New Testament, literally anoint means to apply oil. Normally they would, like in, in certain rituals, oil would be applied to somebody's head. But the anointed one, right, or to anoint one was to bless him. So the anointed one of God was like the blessed one of God. Um, and perhaps, perhaps there's this sort of like double entendre going on where Jesus anoints this man and he regains his sight. And this is a prefigurement of then Jesus anointing us with the Holy Spirit, which those exact words are used um, in, in Acts. Jesus anoints us with the Holy Spirit, and so we gain spiritual sight. I think it's quite likely that we are intended to make that connection, and we just don't make it because we're not reading the text in Greek. But again, another thing that I leave completely up to, to your discretion. And then... The last part of the of the healing that is remarkable is that Jesus says, go wash up at the pool of Siloam. Well, why is that remarkable? Because remember, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, and they had a water-drawing ceremony, like a water-drawing ritual, and they would draw water from that very pool. So Jesus is kind of appropriating this ritual in this whole festival to show who he is, right? Um 
So it's quite clever and it's quite powerful if you kind of make those connections to the setting, to what was going on. Well, so this man is healed and then his quote neighbors, that's the word in the text, are just amazed and confused. And some of them are in denial. It is important to understand some of the context here of what's going on. Um, it was it was not uncommon for there to be beggars, particularly in the big city of Jerusalem. Big, of course, by their standards, not by ours. Uh, a beggar could have survived, uh, you know, his whole life by by doing that by begging. It was part of the Jewish culture to be charitable, to provide, to give to the people who are destitute. So, um, you know, people would have donated to this guy. Now, that is not to say that begging was viewed positively. That's certainly not the case. Uh, we have writings at the time that said it would be better to die than to live the life of a beggar. Okay. Well, but why am I saying all this? Because this is a guy that would have been begging there for a long, long time. We don't know how many years, but again, years, a long time. People would have given money to this guy or food or whatever. Um, so they would have seen him. Everybody knows who this guy is, or perhaps not everybody. I'm overstating my case. Many people would have, and they would like undoubtedly have known of his blindness. So when he's healed, people just cannot believe it, right? And they're saying, wow, is this the, is this the blind guy? You know, like, are we getting it wrong? There's all this disbelief because something so miraculous has happened. And... Um, the conversation then very quickly goes, or the, the action, so to speak, very quickly goes from the miracle to a sort of trial because the Pharisees immediately go on the offensive and they treat this very much like a trial with witnesses, with cross-examination, um, and they don't seem to give you know two flips about the fact that the guy has been healed. That They never even bring that up. They ask him, um, you know, what happened? And mind you, the text always says, you know, he made mud and healed me. He made mud and healed me. <laughs> and I just find it rather humorous that the fact that he made mud is such a big deal. Um, well, I break down this discussion into, you know, different points or whatever, different sections. At first, we see that there is an epistemological conflict between the two parties, between the Pharisees and the blind man. And uh, I, I, I think I can safely assume that everyone here is familiar with the idea of epistemology, but just in case you're not, um, I'll describe it briefly. Epistemology is how we know things. Right. Not what we know, not what not if what we know is true or not. That really would be more ontology. But it is how we know things. If if you want a good example of this, and I, and I always think <laughs> about this one, you know when people get into the moral argument for the existence of God, and somebody will say, hey, you know, there there seems to be a right and wrong, and, and that clearly points to God. Of course, I'm not delivering the argument in a syllogism. I'm trying to recreate a more casual conversation, right? But when somebody says something like that, you oftentimes hear a response that says something like, well, I don't think there is a right and wrong, because if there is, how can we know what is right and how can we know what is wrong? And notice that the person who makes such a response, um, not to insult anybody, but they're just not very good at logic or philosophy, because 
one one issue is is there a right and wrong that is an ontological inquiry and the way the other person is responding is can we know whether there's a right and wrong and that is epistemologies how we know can we know and those two are actually not related not logically speaking i mean there's plenty of things that are or are not true but that we cannot know uh, for example how many grains of sand are there at the beach well there clearly is an answer right but we cannot know the answer now just because we cannot know the answer doesn't mean that there is no answer that is a there's a confusion that people generally have if they don't have any kind of background in philosophy okay forgive me for my little rabbit trail there but what i'm trying to point out here is that the two parties are coming to the question of who jesus is from a very different epistemological standpoint the pharisees are coming from the standpoint that we know because the torah told us okay so we know because the torah told us that it that it is illegal uh, you know quote unquote it's illegal to work on the sabbath and this guy worked on the sabbath so he must not be from god and the blind man is saying look man i'm i'm i know because of experience right one is knowing because of the torah the other guy is knowing because of experience he's going look man you can say whatever you want but i know that i was blind and i know that now i see so say what you will but like this guy's the real deal okay now the conversation is not going to stay at this level the the arguments continue on uh something that i that i point out though on the blog i when when i explain this when i say this please do not kind of take my words further than they're meant to go i'm by no means saying that uh when we approach christianity we should value experience over scripture that's not actually what i am saying um but i am saying i suppose if if i want to like summarize my point that both scripture and experience uh they are relevant to when we're coming to conclusions and they both should point us to god um and uh, i give an example um the hermeneutics by the way is how you it's kind of the the art of interpreting scripture somebody may take offense with me calling it an art but the thing is it's it's very hard to interpret a text sometimes so it's a bit of a science it's a bit of an art at any rate i should call it the discipline of of interpreting scripture and uh, john wesley who started the methodist church he had kind of this famous hermeneutical approach where he would consider scripture to be kind of the 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 highest standard and then he considers three other things uh which would include tradition reason and experience okay so um but just keep this in mind right that, that these two parties are coming from different standpoints to this argument however really both the pharisees and the blind man they are both highly aware of one fact that everyone agrees on that somebody who can do this miracle is a man of god and why do we know that everyone agrees on that because the pharisees have said as much back in chapter three right when nicodemus comes to jesus uh in john 3 verses 1 and 2 he says the following and I, i'm going to read those verses now a certain man a pharisee named nicodemus who was a member of the jewish ruling council came to jesus at night and said to him rabbi we know that you are a teacher who has come from god for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you do 
unless God is with him. Right? A Pharisee is coming and saying that. No one could do the miracles that you do unless you were from God. Okay. Um, and because the Pharisees, now chapter 9, are highly aware of this, they have to deny the miracle. They have to say, nope, didn't happen. Didn't happen, guys. Although everybody knows the blind guy. Everybody knows he was blind. Everybody knows he was healed. But how are the Pharisees going to deny this? They call the guy's parents. Now, clearly there's a little bit of time here in which they discuss and, and the Pharisees, uh, they inform the audience some, somehow. The text doesn't tell us how, but... They have decided that anybody who decides that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, remember those means those mean the same thing, they are gonna be kicked out of um of their religious community, right? Of the synagogue. And which is what we nowadays would call excommunicate. Anybody who says Jesus is the Christ will get excommunicated. And they call the parents, and the parents know this. And they say, hey, was your son blind? Now, again, the text does not say this, but I think we can safely imply that the Pharisees hoped that they had applied enough pressure to the parents that the parents would actually say no, that they would deny it, right? They would say, no, 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 our, our son faked it the whole time. All these years he faked it. He was not blind. Um, again, the text doesn't say that, but I think it's a very safe assumption to make. But the parents, although they feel clearly intimidated, they don't go all the way there. They do say, yep, our son was blind and now he can see. And and the Pharisees go, now, how did that happen? And they're like, mm, we don't know. You're going to have to ask him, which is a little bit cruel for the parents to throw their own son under the bus. Uh, but you could also, I suppose, interpret that in a more innocent way that the parents literally do not know, you know, that this just happened, whatever. Um, but uh, they, they do say our son is, our translation says mature, other translations may say of age. What that means is that the blind guy is at least 13. Now, not 13, at least 13. So he could be 13 or he could be 40. We don't know. Um, you know, he's got living parents, so we can assume the guy is probably not, you know, 50 or 60. Um, but between 13 and 40, you take your best guess. Um, but at any rate, he's an adult. Ask him. So the Pharisees called the blind guy back to the stand, metaphorically speaking. And mind you, they have rigged the trial, right? They, they have intimidated people and said, don't you dare say that Jesus is the Christ. And the, the blind man, it really, I should say formerly blind. I keep calling him the blind guy just so we know who I am talking about. But of course, at this point in the story, he's the formerly blind guy. But whatever. Um, well, they pretty much demand with a leading statement, condemn Jesus as a sinner. And blind man says, no. He says, look, say what you will about Jesus. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. But I was blind. And now I see. Okay. And the Pharisees ask him again, tell us again what he did to you. And at this point, 
the blind man is now backing down and he responds in mockery. And right? he says, you want me to tell you again why? So you can become his disciple? C clearly knowing that that's not the case, right? He's just, he's being sarcastic at this point. But notice the amount of faith that the blind man has. Even his parents have been intimidated. But this guy will not back down. Even if this will get him kicked out, excommunicated from the synagogue, from his religious community, uh, and, and we can hardly understand what a big deal that is. And I may go into that here a little bit later, but let's just say that is a huge, huge, huge deal. It is his whole structure of support. and But he will follow Jesus despite the consequences. This is really the first time that we see this level of faith in the Gospel of John. You could say perhaps the other person would be the woman at the well, since she goes and tells the whole town, but she's not under threat like this guy is. Well, um, just as a sort of a side note here. Oh, actually, no. Then I'm. A, I just looked at the time, and I better, uh, I better move on a little bit quicker. Um, notice that the, the blind man grows in faith because at first he, all he knows is he has been healed by Jesus, but he doesn't know who Jesus is, not only from a, like a ordinary standpoint, but from a more like theological standpoint. At first he just describes Jesus as a man, then as a prophet. And finally he accepts Jesus testimony that he is the son of man, right? So he goes from regular guy to prophet, to son of man. And we have discussed how that phrase has tremendous theological significance. It comes from the book of Daniel. Um, well, the the last two things I, I want to discuss, and I guess, uh, Matt, if you want to mention questions, and then I'll go to the last two points and we can open it up. Sure. As usual, if you have a question, a uh, point of discussion, whatever might be on your mind, just type the word question in the chat, just the word question. I will be happy to bring you in uh, after Robert is finished up. Okay. Well, I have two more points, and I'm sorry, I, I kind of spoke a, a little bit long tonight. But first, I want to discuss Jesus' statement at the very end of the chapter, or towards the very end. This is not the last verse. But he says, uh, For judgment I have come into this world, so that those who do not see may gain sight, and the ones who see may become blind. Now, the reason I want to discuss this is because you may remember chapter 3, where Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Okay, that is in John uh, 3.17. And the word for condemn and the word for to judge are the same word in the Greek. They're just being translated a little differently because of the context. So you may think, hey, we've got a contradiction here. You're coming here... You know, to judge or not to judge? What's the deal? Now, remember that a contradiction, right, is when we say two statements that are contradictory, but they must be true in the same sense and at the same time. Now, if you read the verses in context, clearly they refer to the same time, that being when Jesus is on earth. But do they mean judgment in the same sense? And I don't think so. I don't really think that we have a contradiction here. Not many people argue that we do anyway. So my opinion here is very much in the mainstream. Um, 
And to kind of resolve this, I bring a verse from John chapter 12, which of course we have not read yet. But uh, to keep it to keep it brief, the the distinction here is that, and I guess let me just read this from from chapter twelve. It says, uh, "If anyone hears my words and does not obey them, I do not judge him, for I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not accept my words as a judge, the word I have spoken will judge him at the last day." Okay, so the idea is that. Jesus did not come to earth to dispose of the wicked, right? He didn't come to earth to say, you're a sinner, and so I will punish you, I will destroy you. He came to save the world. He came to die on the cross and to, pro and to provide a means of salvation. So in that sense, Jesus is not condemning anyone, meaning, you know, you're a sinner, here's your punishment, and that's that. People who don't want to listen to him, are free to keep on living their lives however they please. However, the revelation that comes through Jesus does bring a, a judgment in the same in the sense of discernment, right, or of decision. So, those who hear, who learn of this revelation, to who see the light of Jesus and believe in Him, well they will be saved by that in the last day. Those who see that light, who, who hear those words and, and reject him, then they will be judged by that rejection. At the end of the day, in the last day, that is the one consideration. Do you believe or do you not, right? Have you trusted Jesus? So those are the two ways in which we can describe this judgment. And the last thing that I want to mention is what I call the, the great, reversal and this phrase is not my own you know this idea of the great reversal um but notice that jesus makes two statements at the end of the chapter that are a little bit enigmatic he says for judgment i have come into the world so that those who do not see may gain their sight and the ones who see may become blind and then he also says i believe this is the very last verse in the chapter if you were blind you would not be guilty of sin but now because you claim that you can see your guilt remains i think that the best way to understand these verses is actually to go to the gospel of matthew so i'm going to read two statements out of matthew chapter 9. those who are healthy don't need a physician but those who are sick do jesus also says i did not come to call the righteous but sinners now, you may be thinking, this doesn't make any sense, Robert, because didn't you say that we're all sinners? Correct. So, it, sinner also meaning being unwell, right, uh, in that metaphorical sense. So, don't all need a physician because everyone is sick? Correct. That's also true. So, and Jesus affirms that all over the New Testament or all over the Gospels, I have to say. Um, so, what is going on here? Jesus is here to save those who recognize their need for saving. Those who, those who see that they're sinners and desire salvation, well, you know, they will accept Christ and Christ will save them. Those who understand that they're sick and they need a physician, well, Jesus will heal them, uh, spiritually speaking. Those who see that they're blind, or I ought to say, those who understand that they're blind and want sight, Jesus will provide that for them. But those who say, hey, I'm fine. I'm healthy. 
I don't need you. Or I'm fine. I'm not a sinner. I don't need you. Hey, I can see just fine. I don't need you. Those, those are the people who um, will not be saved because they reject the good news of the gospel, right? Because they don't believe that they need it. And to, to those people, and this is also found later in the New Testament, who believe that they're healthy, they believe they can see, they believe that they're not sinners, the gospel is very offensive to them, right? Because they say, I don't need saving. The fact that you say that I need saving is, is calling me a sinner when I'm not a sinner. And so whatever light they have, they, they kind of lose it in that, in that violent rejection of the good news. And again, we see this through the Gospels. We see this later on in the New Testament. Uh, Paul talks about the fact that the Gospel is foolishness to the world. Because again, if you think you're healthy, then the doctor is no good to you. Um, and, and we certainly see that at the end of this chapter. Okay, so I think um, those were the main themes that I absolutely wanted to touch on. And uh, we can move on to questions. Sure. I do see a couple in the chat. I will get to both of you momentarily. So just sit tight. Uh, and, and if anybody else uh, has a question, of course, as I mentioned, just write the word question in the chat and I'll get to you momentarily. Um, I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on the uh, problem of evil that you referenced. You said it's kind of out of fashion or... I don't know yeah. if even settled is the the, the science on, on the question, settled, <laughs> yes. so to speak. And, but I'm only broadly familiar with this, the idea, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if we have an all-knowing, all-good God, how could he possibly oversee or allow a world in which uh, cruelty, evil, all of these bad things exist? Uh, when you Can you just expand on your point a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And so... The Let's first talk about the logical problem of evil because the probabilistic is kind of an offshoot of it. So if we understand the one, we understand the other. The The claim is that if you have a God that is all good and that is almighty, right, that is all powerful, then there's no reason it is logically impossible that there would be evil in the world. Because why wouldn't God stop? The evil. That, that's probably the best way to explain it. Um, one answer would be, well, God can't stop it, but that can't be the answer because God is almighty. Or God doesn't want to stop it, but that also can't be the answer because God is good. So that's how the argument would be presented. Now, the most common uh, Christian defense to this, certainly not the only, but I'll just stick to this one, would be the free will defense, meaning that God has overarching good reasons to allow this. God wants to create beings, humans, right? People who are free that they, and the reason God wants them to be free is so that they can love. That love is kind of this overarching good that God is trying to attain. And if people are not free to decide one way or the other, then you really cannot have true love. You have just sort of like, Bots, right? You have people that God has programmed to do exactly as he told them to do. We call them NPCs, yeah. <laughs> exactly. All you get is NPCs. Yeah. And, um, and, and so God has allowed 
people to have free will, which entails the possibility that people will do bad things, which is what we would call evil. And, but again, God is allowing that evil for this overarching good reason. That's kind of the debate if we look at it very, very briefly. Now, that response from Christians it has been widely accepted to be valid. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to say that the question is settled. It makes it sound like Dr. Fauci. Essentially, yeah. Dr. Fauci has not spoken on this. He has okay. not said <laughs> their philosophy is settled. Yeah. Um, but it is true that most philosophers don't think that there's a logical contradiction between an all good almighty God and evil. But it makes it unlikely that such a God exists. And that's a probabilistic form of the argument. Okay. Uh, thanks for the explanation. The only other question I had uh, on the uh, the conduct at this trial and the prosecution uh, making, okay, so correct me if I'm wrong, but based on my understanding of, of how this went, uh, they, uh, the Pharisees go with this strategy of denying the healing. Yep. And they're going to do this supposedly based on the evidence that is the the witness testimony of the parents yep but the parents confirm the healing yep they just won't say how it happened what is the evidence then that the pharisees are relying on or did they just not expect the parents to respond in that way and if they didn't are they just bad are they bad prosecutors is that the answer <laughs> yeah i mean it, again, the text doesn't literally say this but but i think it's very safe for us to imply this that because you see in the text, they say, nope, the healing did not happen. And then they call the parents. And the text tells us that they've already rigged the trial, that they've threatened the parents and said, don't you, don't you dare, right? Don't you dare. But it doesn't go their way. And the parents go, yep, nope, he was, he was blind. And now Most he can the, okay, see. So they had a plan. It, it's just the parents bucked it. Exactly. Okay. I think right, that's right. how this went. Okay. And then, I was thinking they, they brought the parents to the stand knowing that the parents were going to do what they did. No, Which I, seems bizarre, but yeah. okay. I, I don't think so because you see that they say, let me go back to the text. Uh, uh, now the Jewish religious leaders refused to believe that he had really been blind and had gained his sight until the last, sorry, until at last they summoned the parents of the man who had become able to see. So I, I think that they clearly thought, hey, Nope, we're going to deny this guy was ever blind. Let's call in the parents as, as our star witnesses and yeah. threaten them real good. But the parents were too honest for their plan to work. Okay. Well, thank you for the uh, clarification on that. Let's see. I do have a couple questions to get to here. Actually, several, so I better get moving. A uh, quick written one from Eric. <laughs> a little, little bit of spice here. Uh -huh. This is maybe a, more, uh, a better super chat for Sunday. <laughs> what do you... What do you think of women who call themselves Christians yet dress or act like whores and associate <laughs> themselves with degenerates and atheists? Uh, how can someone like that be saved? Wow. Wow. Um, well, um, I, I guess let me give the standard answer, which is <laughs> the fact that you engage or do not engage in sin is not what determines whether you are or are not a Christian. It is whether you're placing your trust in Jesus. However, the way you act is very telling on whether you you have placed your trust in Jesus, right? You will know them by their fruit. This is New Testament stuff. So no, it's not your actions that save us or don't, but if, you're, if you act like a heathen, you're probably a heathen. 
that's just a fact of the matter. Um, All right. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Eric. Uh, Daniel has a question. Daniel, you're good to go if you're ready. Sure. Um, I was reminded of, of something that uh, I always thought was kind of interesting uh, when it comes to the so-called question of evil. Um, there was a movie that came out. Not many people saw it back in 2013 um, called uh, Killing Season. I believe it was Robert De Niro and uh, John Travolta. Anyway, um, one of the uh, uh, Travolta's character in this movie um so I thought said something interesting about the problem of evil. And he, he tells De Niro's character, uh, he asks him if he believes in God and he tells him, you know, because I believe in him, I know he exists and I'll tell you why. And he describes a scene in which um, he's walking home from work and he sees a crowd of people in the town square. Turns out he describes it. It, it was soldiers dragging Serbs from their houses they raped his mother and his sister, and they poured petrol over the wounded bodies. Um, they split the men's heads with axes and, and uh, left them to die in the square. And he says, and I ask myself, if God truly exists, how could he allow such terrible things? And then I realized it is not the proof of the absence of God. This is actually the proof of his existence, because men alone could not be capable of such magnificent evil. And um, I the character is probably blaming God um, for the evil in the world in a, in a matter of speaking. But I always thought there was an element of this that rings true, that what he is really getting at is there is a spiritual side to things. And this, is, this on some level, helps to explain why, actually, there is such terrible evil in the world, because it goes beyond what we would just consider sort of carnal evil, you know, just instinctual bad things um and I, I always thought that was interesting so i just thought i'd get your reaction from that uh yeah i have actually heard this argument made before as well i think it's a good one that um if we just took a kind of a naturalistic approach to existence you know and and we are just animals and all that all that stuff it's actually hard to explain the levels of evil that we engage in and perhaps it is more likely to explain that evil because of spiritual forces that are at work um so yeah i i think it's a good one um but yeah thank you for bringing that up that's all i can say i think it's a good one thanks daniel Next, we have Eric and Cindy. You guys are good to go if you're ready. It's about the, um, uh, like, I can't remember what the question was. I remember my story, though, that I was going to, about the point. Can you hear us? Or hear yeah. Me? yeah, loud and clear. Okay, so um, one of our sons, before he started dating, um, I really admired his attitude about young women. And um, I said something to him about it. You know, that it was respectful and chaste and, you know, good Christian, but not prudish kind of, you know, attitude about it. <clears throat> and so I commented and complimented him on it. And he corrected me and said, um, he said, don't do that. He said, I haven't been tested. I haven't had a girlfriend. We don't really know who I am until I'm put in that position hmm. to see how I'm going to actually behave. And um, I think that that's, that's why... It's a good example of, you know, why evil can happen. I think that's why I was going to write that up. 
Like, why is why does evil happen? Or why are we even given the opportunity to do that? Because we don't know who we are if we're living in a very shielded and very, you're not allowed to. And, you know, like, even if, like, spiritually, if you just, you couldn't go where you would go if you were lo- allowed to be yourself. So you don't know that you need him if you, if you don't, you know what I mean? If you don't know what you're capable of or what people in general are capable of. And so it's kind of the free will thing, but you know, the free will serves a purpose of telling us why we need him. Hmm. Sounds like a wise young man. Wow. Uh, uh, I'm I'm kind of impressed by the story. How old was he when he said that to you? About uh, maybe 17 or 18. Okay. Wow. Good for him. Yeah. All right. Uh, Robert, did you have any thoughts on that? No, I think it's a great comment. Thank you for sharing that story. It really is quite inspiring. All right. right. Thanks, Cindy. Have a good night. Uh You too. Uh, Brian has a question. Go ahead, Brian. Or a comment. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. um, First off, Cindy, you have an awesome kid. That is inspiring. Um, That actually, I'm I'm a little verklempt. It gives me hope for the future that you're your son would be that wise. But, uh, and my point kind of dovetails into that in a loose kind of way. I wanted to address the problem of evil. I got a couple of points that I'll try to state concisely. And if Robert or anybody agrees or disagrees or has uh, something to add, I'm, I'd be interested to hear it. But uh, the free will answer is is certainly vital to the answer, but it's really only half of it. But to but to address the problem fully, we have to recognize that for there to be such categories as good and evil in the first place, well, this presupposes an an, an objective standard of morality, and you need God for that. If if God doesn't exist, evil just means what we don't happen to prefer. And there's not really any basis to object to that. It's just we don't we don't like it. There's no there's no moral dimension to it. And he, and some some people might intellectually accede to that, but nobody can live that way. We are, we're, we morality undergirds our every assumption of human interaction. We can't escape it. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that it's that it's real, but to tr- to try to live as if it's not true is to embrace absurdity and nobody can do it, which makes God's existence. This is, this is basically a really fast drive-by version of the moral argument for God's existence. And so the, the problem of evil sort of does more to establish God's existence than, than challenge it. But also the entire biblical narrative, like all of Christianity is the answer to the problem of evil, that it's God telling the world through Jesus the day will come when God will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He is going to do away with evil. Um, his, his, his tolerance of evil is only temporary, but the people who are complaining that, well, if God was real, he would do something with, about evil, well, that's not very good news for them. Because um, when you start judging evil, as it turns out, well, we're all evil. We have to, we have to do something about our own evil before it becomes good news that God's going to do something about it. And that's why Jesus came. That's why the crucifixion had to happen and the resurrection and the ascension. And uh, so it's, I mean, it's the, the, the problem of evil is 
rather than being a challenge to Christianity, it, it's a it's a really great framing. Um, but that's that's my point in a nutshell. I'm trying to avoid my usual habit of monologuing, and I have failed. But uh, that's that's what I got. Thank you. No, thank, thanks, Brian. Uh, you're you're speaking my language with that because that sort of question is exactly why I'm here, and I hadn't thought about that uh, or this philosophical dilemma in the way that you framed that if we grant the premise of the problem of evil, that is evil's existence, well, it does presuppose that we have some sense of what evil is. The original question still stands, where did that sense of what evil is come from? What is the basis for that? Uh, that's uh, an interesting way to think about that question. Not one that I haven't heard that explanation uh, before. So I appreciate that. Did you have thoughts on that, Robert? Yeah, I fully agree. I'm glad he pointed that out. Yeah, I've, I've always thought the same thing that Prime point, pointed out. I mean, when people bring up their problem of evil, I think, well, I mean, yeah, you're kind of already assuming God to show that God doesn't exist. But uh, but no, I mean, his, his response is very standard, or Brian's comment, I mean, and it's very powerful. It's very true. Uh, so fully with him. Thank you for sharing that, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, but um, just like one more final, I mean, really, I, I, I think I've already said this, but it can't really be overstated. When someone brings the problem of evil kind of persists as the as the the pop popularly perceived as the greatest challenge to Christianity. But as soon as somebody brings it up, they've they've really like Christianity wins. I mean, all of the all of the premises for the truth of Christianity are built into that. So that's anyway, I'm uh, I might have uh, repeated myself a few times, but thanks for indulging me. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Brian. Appreciate it. And let me just add to that, that uh, the problem of evil is certainly the biggest emotional objection to Christianity. Um, and and I, I don't say that to like, uh, criticize anyone. I mean, like when you talk about emotional roadblocks to accepting Christ, the problem of evil certainly is number one. Um, but it is not the most powerful intellectual problem to Christianity, because like I said, really even most philosophers said, I'm not talking Christian ones, I'm talking just across the board, Christian and non-Christian. Um, they, they have mostly given up on the logical one. And now we're talking about probabilities here and there. It's just not the most powerful uh, you know, philosophical argument, but it remains a, a strong emotional one. And so we need to continue to address it. All right. I think we are all, all caught up on questions and uh, that's about perfect timing because we're right at the top of the hour. Great. So maybe with a minute to spare. Did you have any other thoughts you wanted to add before we're finished up, Robert? Uh, no, I think we covered everything and thank you for everyone's comments. They were great. All right. Thanks for uh, your attendance and your participation tonight. Uh, as always, appreciated, everybody. And uh, as usual, we will be back next Saturday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Have a great week in the meantime.